In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. St. Peter says of St. Paul in his second epistle that there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand. Now, I imagine that what St. Peter considered hard to understand might be substantially different than what we would consider hard to understand. And so we can only guess at what he might have meant. I think it's safe to say, however, that anyone who has spent any significant time reading Paul's epistles will sympathize with St. Peter's remark. There are some things in the epistles of St. Paul that are hard to understand. While we all may have our own list of Pauline conundrums, one of the things that stands out to me is what Paul says in Colossians 2 and 3. At the end of chapter 2, Paul says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He then says a few verses later, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, see it at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is possible, it is possible that here Paul is simply relating the death and resurrection of Jesus to the believer's life as some sort of ethical metaphor. But that doesn't really do justice to what St. Paul has actually said. According to Paul, you have died, you have been raised, and you have done both with Jesus Christ. There are some things in the epistles of St. Paul that are hard to understand. But let's table that for a moment, because today we celebrate baptism. I am always very grateful to Father Martin when he affords me the opportunity to preach but I am particularly grateful for this opportunity. Beyond the fact that our friends and family are here to celebrate with us the baptism of our little Anne Elizabeth, or Nanners as I like to call her, (laughs) beyond the fact that their presence by itself adds a certain amount of pressure, in fact, um, Michelle told me that on a scale of 1 to 10, the sermon had to be an 11. So... (laughs) um, My real concern today, the heavy weight that I feel, and the true reason that I am so grateful, is that this is the day on which our daughter will be baptized. This is an important day. The 39 articles say there are two sacraments ordained of Christ our Lord in the gospel. That is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. Now, when the relationship between heaven and earth is properly understood, all of life takes on a sacramental aspect. And yet, the fact remains that there are only two sacraments ordained by our Lord in the Gospels, and we will celebrate both this morning. Anna will only be baptized once, and so I am thankful to Father Martin for this opportunity to proclaim faithfully the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ on this special day. But when it comes to the gospel and Jesus and the symbols and sacraments of the Christian faith, I think we tend to believe, or at least I used to believe, 
that most of what, most of what is distinctive about the Christian faith and the New Testament is distinctive precisely because it's new. We tend to think that like Jesus himself, the Christian faith and its stories and its symbols dropped out of heaven and brought with them new and exciting and fresh truth. After all, didn't Jesus say you don't put new wine into old wineskins? I remember quite clearly one of my professors telling me that if God had poured the new wine of the gospel into the old wine of the Old Testament and first century Judaism, the wineskin would have burst, and so instead God did something new. Well, yes and no. God certainly did something new, but when St. Mark sat down to write his gospel, he began with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. According to St. Mark, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. So at least some of that new wine is going into the old Isaiahic wineskins. Um, sorry to my old professor. But in fact, it would seem that Mark has in mind much more than just Isaiah. Um, if, we're, if we're paying attention, we'll notice that the supposed quotation from Isaiah is actually a conglomeration of texts. It's Malachi 3, it's Isaiah 43, and there's a little bit of Exodus thrown in. Um, But what both the Isaiah text and the Malachi text are doing is they center around this one announcement, this one proclamation, the announcement that Israel's long-awaited redemption, her new exodus, the gospel, was beginning. We must remind ourselves from time to time that the word gospel wasn't an invention of the early church. While the word had been used before in reference to emperors and Caesars, its primary reference comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And within the Septuagint, the majority of its usage, in fact, over half of its usage, comes in so-called Second Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. This is precisely what Mark calls the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This great section of Isaiah contains the prophet's announcement that Israel's redemption begins like this. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Comfort. Comfort my people. Her exile is over. Her sins are forgiven. Her warfare is over. And God will once again lead his people back to the promised land. Isaiah proclaims as chapters 40 to 55 develop that just as God had delivered his people from Egypt at the first exodus, so he would again deliver them from their physical and spiritual exile by a new exodus. Malachi, developing this great theme, said, Behold, I send my messenger before my face. 
and he will prepare the way of the Lord before me. Before the great new exodus announced by Isaiah in chapters 40 to 55 can begin, before the end of the exile, before the forgiveness of sins, before warfare is ended, the messenger, the forerunner of the Lord, must come. And so, Mark says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It should be obvious then that St. Mark wants his readers to understand John's baptism rather than being something completely new as rather the inauguration of something in fact quite old. It is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ in accordance with the great Isianic hope of return from exile. The baptism of Jesus and correspondingly our baptism becomes one in a series of great deliverance through the water moments in Israel's history. The most obvious background for John's baptism is clearly the stopping of the Jordan River just before the people's entrance into the promised land. There, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God stopped the waters of the river so that his people could pass through on dry land. And now John stands out in the wilderness, calling people to prepare for the long-awaited moment when, God's, when Israel's God would fulfill his ancient promises. God call, John called the people back out to the wilderness, back out to confess their sins and to be baptized, to pass through once again the waters of the Jordan River, to pass through the Jordan and enter into the promised land of the new covenant people of God. And of course, just as John's baptism looked back to the Jordan River, so the Jordan River looked back to the Red Sea. As the people of God began their exodus from Egypt, faced with Pharaoh's army on one side and the death-dealing waters of the Red Sea on the other, God made a way through the chaotic waters. He made dry land appear for his people on which they could safely pass. And this story, the Red Sea, of course, looks back to an earlier story, the story of creation. We must remind ourselves that for the ancient Near East, the sea, the primordial waters, were a place of chaos and death. The prophet Daniel draws on this imagery in Daniel 7 when he says, the, when he says that he saw the four beasts rising out of the sea. But back at creation, when the chaotic waters full of monsters and beasts cover the face of the deep, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. All of these deliverance through the water moments in Israel's history all looked back to that one moment when God looked at creation and saw that there was no place for humanity to dwell in safety. And so he commanded dry land to appear. These great deliverance through the water moments then, the Jordan River, the Red Sea, creation, and we could add to this Noah's Ark, they form the background of John's baptism, the baptism, into which, the, the baptism with which Jesus was baptized. They tell the story, along with the themes from Isaiah and Malachi, of God's past redemption of his people and the promise to once again rescue and redeem them. But there is one fundamental problem with all of these stories. This might sound silly, but it's significant. At the Jordan River, 
at the Red Sea, in the ark, at creation. Nobody got wet. There may be a few exceptions caused by raindrops or the priest standing in the river with the ark. But the point of these stories is precisely that when the chaotic sea reared its ugly head and death was ready to consume his people, God's people, God made a way through the water. He made dry land appear. So what does this tell us about baptism? St. Mark tells us that with John's baptism, the long-awaited redemption had begun. John, the forerunner of the Lord. Note, John is not the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the forerunner of Yahweh himself. John was the forerunner of the Lord, and in the person of Jesus, the Lord had finally come back to rescue his people from their bondage and sin. And this time, this time, he says... This time the salvation of the people of God would not come by deliverance through the water. No. No dry land would appear this time. Rather, Jesus' baptism signified this time redemption would come precisely by his entering into the water and coming back out alive. This time, redemption will not come by escape, but by death and by resurrection. This time, Jesus would be plunged into the water, be defeated by it, and come back out alive. Mark begins his gospel with John and Jesus' baptism because this event, his baptism, gave meaning and trajectory to all of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus' baptism is Holy Week in a nutshell in a symbol, in a sacrament. Jesus' baptism points back to the deliverance through the water moments of the Jordan River, the Red Sea, and creation. But it also points forward to Jesus' own death and resurrection as the new defining reality of the new covenant, the new creation, and the new exodus. At his death, Jesus was submerged into the chaotic sea of death so that it would exhaust its forces on him and let the rest of the world go free. At his resurrection, Jesus emerged from those defeated waters into the new creation, into God's new world. Baptism proclaims exactly what our reading from Hebrews said. It was through death, not by escaping death, but through death, that he destroyed the one who has the power of death. This time, redemption was accomplished on Good Friday, when Jesus entered into the water, and on Easter when he was raised out alive. And now we come back to our introduction. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. He says, if you have died with Christ, and he assumes you have. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, and he assumes you have. And so we ask, when? When, Paul? When did I die with Christ, and when was I raised with Christ? Don't you know, Paul says in Romans 6, that all of us who have been baptized into the Messiah Jesus were baptized into his death. That means that we were buried with him. We were buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as the Messiah was raised from the death 
through the Father's glory, we too might behave with a new quality of life. He says also in Colossians 2, You were buried with him by baptism, and indeed also raised with him, through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. It is, Paul says, by the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead that at our baptism we are so united with Jesus that, at, that our baptism becomes a baptism into his death and into his resurrection. And so Paul can assume that the baptized have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ. He says, if you have, if you have died with Christ then you must put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is a form of idolatry. And if you have been raised with Christ, then then seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, Brothers and sisters, according to St. Paul, the ground of the ethical imperative of the Christian life is the sacrament of baptism. At your baptism, you died, and at your baptism, you have been raised. And so your Christian life is the process of becoming what you already are in Christ by virtue of your baptism. If you have died with Christ then put to death the things that are earthly in you. If you have been raised with Christ, then set your mind on things that are above. The Christian life, the journey of faith, as the baptismal liturgy calls it, is the process of becoming what you are, what you already are in Christ by virtue of your baptism. And so today, Anna will die with Christ and be raised with Christ not by virtue of her own faith or my faith or Michelle's faith or Andrew's faith or Joy's faith, but by the power of God. Today and every day after, again, as the liturgy says, we are trusting God, not ourselves, but God for her growth in faith. Just as the Holy Family some 2,000 years ago brought the infant Jesus to the temple to be offered back to God, so today we bring Anna forward and we place her faith, her life, her death, and her resurrection into the hands of God. In the temple that day, we are told, were Simeon and Anna. Simeon was waiting for the Messiah in the beginning of the new exodus promised by Isaiah. He was waiting, Luke said, for God to comfort Israel. Comfort, comfort my people, Isaiah had prophesied. Jesus, Simeon says, was a light for revelation to the nations, and glory for the people of Israel. And while Luke spends most of his text on Simeon, we must not forget that Anna was also there in the temple that morning. Luke calls her a prophetess. And we are told that she had dedicated most of her adult life to worship, prayer, and fasting. Anna met her Lord and her Messiah in the temple that day. And Luke says that having met her Savior, she gave thanks to God and spoke about Jesus to everyone who was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Please join me in prayer.
Lord, just as Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, met you in the temple some 2,000 years ago, we pray that our Anna will also meet you and recognize you as her Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray that like Anna in the temple, this precious life that you have entrusted to us as parents, as grandparents, as godparents, and as a church will be a life dedicated to worship, fasting, and prayer. We pray, Lord, that throughout her life, she will give you thanks and be so overwhelmed by your love, your mercy, your grace, and your redemption that like Anna in the temple, she will speak about Jesus to everyone. Today, Lord, we entrust into your hands her life, her death, and her resurrection. We trust that her redemption has been secured by the cross and the resurrection of the Son. We trust that she will be led by the Spirit on her journey of faith to be the person she already is in the Messiah by virtue of her baptism this morning. We trust, Father, that you will be her Father, and that by the same power with which you raised your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, you will also raise her up on the last day. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen.